You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Simon Lack, who is a uh founder of SL Advisors, long career in banking, Manny Hanny, Chemical, JP Morgan Chase, bunch of different outfits, both in London and in the US. And also, of course, the author of a couple books that I've enjoyed, this one here, Bonds Are Not Forever. I Just now did I get the pun, okay? Just now I, I got the James Bond reference. I don't know, it just didn't occur to me earlier. And of course, this book, The Hedge Fund Mirage, which created quite a storm nearly a decade ago. And I've used a lot of the information in this book in programs that I do with pension funds all around the country. So welcome, Simon. Thank you. Good to be on, Greg. So you wrote this book called Bonds Are Not Forever. And you know this was a couple of years ago when you were talking about the massive debt loads and the balance sheet of the central banks back then. If only you had known, if only you had known what was about to happen in, in the few years subsequent to this book, I, I don't know whether you'd probably want to double down on a lot of the things you said in this book. But before we jump into that- It's been wanna... pretty timely. What's happened is a continuation of a trend that I thought was there. Really, since Clinton, there's been almost no votes in fiscal discipline. And you know, inflating away debt is the way to deal with it if you have a lot of debt. And that is the situation that a lot of Western countries, especially the United States, find themselves. And so I felt that over time that would happen. One monetary theory, which hadn't really caught a lot of attention when I wrote the book, is just a manifestation of that in terms of the government just spending and spending until it causes inflation. I think we'll get to that. That's a rather modern theory that's come about. Well, actually, it's not that modern, but it's really put some doctrine around some things that people have been talking about for a long time. But I wanted to go back in, in time a bit. You have a lot of history in the bond book, but I want to talk a little bit about your own history. You've been in fixed income pretty much your, your, your whole life, broadly understood, and you entered into it directly out of out of school instead of going the normal route you went directly into the markets and these markets were very you're not that old but they seem prehistoric when you describe them in the book could you talk a little bit about you know what the bond markets the gilt markets looked like when you started working yeah so i took an unconventional route because i went from high school in london to work in the uk government bond market in 1980 and it was a world apart gilts changed hands on the stock exchange trading floor and it was a very formal place. It reflected the sort of the class structure of Britain as it perhaps was then. So, for example, equities was on one part of the floor, gilts was on another. Equities was thought of as a blue collar market, gilts was sort of white collar. So, in English terms, you know, public school boys, which would think of that as private school in America, public school boys were gilts. That's me, you know, comprehensive or state school the equity market. And the way gilts traded is the government would issue to one broker called Mullins. They were called the government broker, and that was a very prestigious role. And the government broker would go and trade, they'd buy from the treasury, and then they'd sell to the market. And the government brokers had to wear top hat and tails on the floor of the London Stock Exchange. So this is in my lifetime. This is in 1980. You know, they'd walk around that tradition, I'm sure, must have gone back 100 years or more. Uh, so it was a very... It wasn't that modern. I mean, we had walkie-talkies down on the floor that worked sort of intermittently. Tremendous amount of tradition. It was all about sort of apprenticeship within that world. Pay your dues, do your time. You won't get paid any money for 10 years, but eventually you'll make partner and then you'll make a lot of money. Very stuffy, very slow progression up. And of course, now that it all trades over the phone. But yeah, it's hard to imagine, even in my lifetime, 
that a government broker that had to wear a top hat to go to work every day. That was the tradition. Now, look, there's been quite a lot of technological innovation since then, but it's been uneven. It's been unevenly applied, at least with respect to how efficient and liquid these markets have become. And you describe how very early in your career, you realized that there's a lot of opacity in in the bond market and the bond markets are, you know, operate in ways that, that are somewhat primitive compared to the way equity markets work. Could you talk about that? And to what extent is that, is that still true? It's becoming less true, but there's millions of different bonds. You know, with equities, there's a few thousand stocks, which is a lot. But with bonds, there's, you know, especially if you include municipal bonds in the United States, there's millions of what are called QCIPs, you know, those unique identifiers that go with them. And so it's really impossible for a retail investor to know where the market is for particular security. I mean, you call up different brokers and that's really time consuming. You, you can't trade bonds on a screen with the exception of now government bonds you can, investor grade corporate bonds in a lot of cases, and institutionally it's becoming more liquid. But the bond market has always been I think less efficient than the equity market for the end user in terms of figuring out where prices really are. And that's, of course, always been to the benefit of the brokers. In all of my years in trading interest rates, you wanted the market to be fairly liquid, but not perfectly liquid as a market maker. You know, you want that opacity as a market maker because it's in that that you make your bid spread. And so it's taken a very long time for technology to evolve towards where the transaction costs of bonds are as low as they ought to be. And so complexity is kind of the friend of the intermediary, right? Absolutely. And I think we we saw prior to the financial crisis, complexity achieved levels that had uh, hitherto never been seen. And and this created a lot of opportunities for for intermediaries, particularly in the swaps market. Could you talk a bit about your experiences there? Because swaps are part of the fixed income world, but they're not bonds. Yeah, so when I was trading interest rate swaps, and a lot of what happens with investment banks and with trading is you're trying to deliver more complex products that are made up of simpler products. And in combining those simpler products together, you can add on a profit margin and they're very hard to decompose. So structured notes are a great example, right? Structured notes where investors are given sort of certain defined outcomes. The bank's not taking the risk on the other side. They're hedging out the risk with generic options and they're doing it cheaply. So when I was trading interest rate swaps, we were a market maker and it was pretty liquid, but not perfectly liquid. And so as a market maker, you know, we were making lots of money from volume. Now, the technology for interest rate swaps to trade electronically has existed for over 20 years. And one of the things I found fascinating, actually in the late 90s, when I was heading interest rate derivatives trading, a couple of proposals came to me to make swaps screen-based and therefore completely liquid. And what's required is the participation of the big banks because they're the ones who are going to make the prices. And so the pitch to me would be, hey, look at all the commissions. You go, yeah, we spent a lot of money on commissions. It's true to trade with, with inter-dealer brokers. You'll save all this commission because it'll be cheaper. But of course, the huge cost to us was that the bid-ask spread that we were charging would come in very narrowly. So yeah, we'd save on commissions, but our source of revenue, which is multiples of that, would go away. And so these plans never got off the ground because the big bank, we didn't need to collude. The big banks, JP Morgan, Deutsche, City, we all knew that this would be a bad development for us. And so you had the end users of interest rate swaps who clearly would have benefited from lower transaction costs 
But that could only happen with the active cooperation of the market makers. And the market makers didn't have that same alignment of interest with their clients. And so even today, interest rate swaps, I have friends who are brokers in that market. Even today, interest rate swaps trade predominantly through a voice broker system. It's more transparent than it used to be. Prices have to get posted and trades reported on the trace or something like the trace system is used for bonds. But it's still not like trading equities. And the regulators tried after the financial crisis to really force electronic trading and complete transparency. But it's very, very hard if you need the cooperation of the market makers and they don't see it as an interest to do that. So it's, boy, if you would have asked me 20 years ago, will there still be swaps executed on the phone in 2021? I would have bet definitely not. And that's been extraordinary, I think. Yeah, it's astonishing. And I think everyone thought that, you know, central clearinghouses and swaps execution facilities would move the ball forward quite a bit. But it seems like people do everything in their power to work around that system. Yeah, they have. I mean, where they have used technology is on the credit risk. So it used to be when swaps originated, if I was at JP Morgan, I did a swap with Citibank, then that's a single transaction. There's credit risk in both directions, depending on how the value of the swap changes. And as time went by, millions and millions of these transactions were developed. And it's really complicated to figure out what's my credit exposure to city, what might it be if rates move. So the market has evolved towards a clearinghouse, which makes a lot of sense then, right? So you do a trade with Citibank, it goes to a clearinghouse instead of with Citibank. So that mitigates the credit risk for everybody. And that doesn't really change the liquidity that much. It's not sort of that detrimental. And it saves a lot of credit exposure, actually say it frees up capital for the bank. So that has evolved but not the basic mechanics of the execution of the trades, not nearly as much as you might have thought. It seems like those early experiences shaped both of your books, because both of your books are a bit about how investors, whether they're they're retail or wholesale, are not always clear about what they're investing in, and they're not really clear about what the risk-return profile looks like. And I think your point is that this is something of an agency problem. As long as the producers can profit from complexity and opacity, they'll do so. But when at the retail level, which we'll talk about, I think it makes a lot of sense. At the wholesale level, it's a little bit harder to understand, right? We'll jump to the hedge fund, you know, book for a second. I, I was planning on kind of deferring that conversation, but, you know, I advise a lot of pension funds and these are very sophisticated investors. And yet when it comes to things like, like hedge funds, oftentimes they're as confused as anybody about what's actually going on underneath the hood with respect to investment strategies and fee structure. How do you explain, I guess, the lack of general understanding among investors, whether we're talking about LPs at the institutional level or, I mean, less it's easier to understand at the retail level? I think with pension funds, there are some sophisticated pension funds. So there's a lot that are not, though. I gave a presentation years ago at something called the Trustee Leadership Forum, which is affiliated with Harvard. And there were people there who were trustees for various pension funds. And, and these were like regular sort of lay people. You know, you have retired teachers and firefighters and so on. And they're there to keep an eye on their former colleagues' pension. They rely heavily on consultants to advise them. And so here's what I think has gone wrong with that is public pension plans don't use gap accounting. They use something called GASB accounting. And this is a little bit of a technical issue, but I think it's actually hugely significant for why hedge funds continue to draw money from pension funds. So with a normal pension fund, you discount the liabilities that you have typically at a corporate bond rate. 
under that's that's gap accounting under gasb accounting government standards accounting you're using the rate that you expect to earn on your assets which is sort of circular right and so what happens is if you add a more risky asset to your portfolio it will drive up your expected return it'll also drive up the discount rate for your liabilities and your liabilities will have a lower net present value so perversely adding a more risky asset which may or may not help you achieve your funding objectives decreases your funding gap if you have a short fund and i think this is completely counterintuitive right so now the consultants understand this right and the consultants come in and they say look you know what you're short funded but if we add hedge funds based on historic returns hedge funds will drive up your expected return on assets they'll also add some diversification and of course your mpv of your liabilities comes down you need to add hedge funds and by the way we can help you pick those hedge funds and so the trustees generally don't have the sophistication to understand well first of all they look in at time weighted returns and hedge fund returns used to be high and they've been coming down you know for for 20 years really for really for 20 years and those high early returns are, are really not relevant because it was a much smaller industry and now there's a lot more market risk in hedge funds than there used to be. You know, they don't really understand that. So the consultants, this is a principal age problem, right? The consultants have identified this accounting inefficiency, which is a very obscure one unless you understand pension accounting. And they've delivered a product that seeks to exploit that. And it's sort of a, I doubt you'll ever have a crisis with that, but it's a slowly unfolding problem that shouldn't exist. You know, I think the villains in the whole hedge fund business are the consultants. I don't think as the hedge fund managers, I mean, in any business, it's quite valid to say, I think I've got the best product. And the response I got from hedge fund managers was quite telling when quite a few hedge fund managers contacted me when the book came out and they said, boy, you're right, there's a lot of mediocrity in the hedge fund business. Not my fund, of course, but a lot of the others really are. And hedge fund managers don't promote the hedge fund industry. They just promote their hedge fund. That's fine. Everybody should believe they have a great business. It's the consultants who promoted the hedge fund industry who are the snake oil salesmen. Yeah, I think if you plug in the historical returns and, and standard deviation that you get from the hedge fund industry into an optimization model, right, you're going to have a pretty substantial allocation going to hedge funds. And we'll talk about the problem with that and, and those numbers. But I think a lot of that is being driven by the expected returns in fixed income, right? In the old the olden days, a pension fund would just kind of match all their liabilities with, with a bunch of bonds and they'd line up the maturity dates and then they'd go to sleep and do nothing more or less until everybody retired. And fixed income, even though it's seen probably the biggest bull market of its entire history in the last 30 years or so, historically hasn't always been such a great investment. And you really walk through this history. When I start off my finance class, I often show historic returns. And first I start by looking at historic returns of the U.S. since 19. 29, you know, everybody looks at those numbers and fixed income and, and equities, but the U.S. is kind of unique. If you look at Germany, if you look at Japan, if you look at, you know, pretty much every other country on the planet, you know, certainly Roman fixed income isn't doing so well today. I'm guessing that if you held all this stuff and just kept rolling it over, you're pretty much going to wind up with nothing the longer you, you hold on to it. German fixed income in the 1920s, I think you might have something like a, a millionth of a penny now if you held on to it. So if fixed income, I mean, has been such, such a poor performer for most of its its history. You know, what accounts for its popularity? Why is it Jeremy Siegel and everybody else says, you know, you should be equity, 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 equity? I, I think the most important question in investing today is why are long-term interest rates so low around the world? 
because that's driving everything, right? Because stocks are expensive except compared with bonds. And that's the whole argument of stocks is the equity risk premium, right? And I think that there's no complete answer to this, but I think part of it is there's an awful lot of money that's in bonds that has an inflexible mandate. There's an awful lot of investors who just have to have some fixed income. And pension funds would be in that category, right? They really are not return sensitive. They have to have whatever, 40%, 30% in fixed income, regardless of what the returns are. They don't have the flexibility to be able to say bonds are just a return-free risk in effect. You can illustrate this very nicely, actually, with some simple numbers. So you take the S&P 500, it yields a little under 2% now, but when I did this first, it was yield about 2%, and 10-year treasuries yield about 2%, about 1.6 now. Right? So let's just suppose you could have $100 in the S&P yielding 2% or 10-year treasuries with 2%. Well, you know what the treasuries will give you in 10 years, you'll get basically about $121 back for the $100 you put in with the stocks, but you know you'll earn that 2%. So then you say, well, if the 10-year treasuries will give me $21, how much do I need to invest in stocks to give me $21? And because you get dividend growth with stocks, you'll see that you can get away with maybe about 20% of that money. So instead of putting $100 in 10-year treasuries, you can put $20 in the S&P 500. And the historic dividend, you assume 5% dividend growth on that 2% dividend yield, and you'll get that $21. So in other words, 20% of your money in stocks will give you what? 100% of when it gives you on bonds, it still sounds risky, but you put the other 80% in treasury bills. So now all of a sudden, you've got this 2080 stocks and cash portfolio instead of having long-term bonds. And that doesn't sound so risky, right? Because now stocks are down 50%, you've lost 10% on that portfolio. Well, it's not hard to lose 10% on long-term bonds. If rates move up about just over a percent, you would lose that. And yet pension funds are not allowed to make that sort of analysis if they were, they could say, oh, well, I'll have this barbell. In fact, I believe the way people should invest today is with that barbell. They should completely shun fixed income and they should have a stocks and cash barbell and rely on stocks to be giving them some of that security that bonds do, but have the cash treasury bills as the ballast. But they don't. Investors, I mean, individuals that we deal with will do that, but institutions on a large scale are not doing that. And it's because of this rigid investment mandate that so many have, particularly foreign central banks and, you know, the Chinese and the Japanese, obviously, enormous investors in US government bonds, they have very rigid investment mandates. They're not going to look at, instead of having a trillion in government bonds, putting a hundred billion into US stocks and the rest in case. They're just not going to do that. Unless you're the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund. They're not going to do it. But the math says they should do that. The math says they should do that. And so you've got a lot of inflexibility, a lot of forced buyers for, of bonds, which is keeping rates as low as they are today. That's, but I think that's not even a complete explanation because real returns, required real returns in fixed income have been declining for decades. This isn't even something that really took place just after the financial crisis in 2008. There's a clear trend over 30 years or more for real returns to come down. And you've seen that in the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, of course, changed the sort of the structure of how they manage monetary policy last year to recognize that the neutral short-term interest rate that they're targeting is now just a half a percent above inflation. So they used to, years ago, they used to target three and a half to four percent as their sort of neutral Fed funds rate with a two percent inflation rate. And they've acknowledged declining real rates by saying, well, maybe two and a half percent is neutral. And that's why they've changed their tolerance for inflation because their neutral rate gives them a lot less room to cut rates in a recession. 
So therefore, they've concluded they need to allow inflation to rise on the upcycle to make sure inflation expectations stay too. So that's, you know, these are quite technical issues, but it's a fascinating time to be looking at all these because we are at some kind of an inflection point for interest rates. But I don't think they're going to go up a lot. They'll go up slowly. Short-term rates will go up very slowly and probably not for a long time in the U.S., and with long-term yields, I mean, the Fed finds it necessary to buy $120 billion of bonds a month now with rates under 2%. There's no way that long-term interest rates are, are causing any kind of restriction on credit. Rates are so low, and yet the Fed still finds it necessary to sort of partially monetize some of the debt. And it's very popular. There's there's nobody sort of opposing that. You know, fiscal hawks get voted, voted out. So... I think that's how that's going to play out. And you're right, you go back and look through history, there's many, many examples of currency debasement and slow inflation. In fact, the US did that after World War II, as I point out in Bonds Are Not Forever. Explicit policy, right? When debt was this high. Do you really think there'd be much opposition to that today if it was explicit policy to pay you know, negative real rates on fixed income? How would that run in an election? People say, yeah, sounds good to me. Why not? You know? There's nobody on the other side of that. So as an investor, you just got to assume that there's going to be more inflation because that's a popular choice. We'll get into inflation in a bit and kind of what you think is going to happen there, but maybe elaborate on who's affected by negative real rates, right? Which, you know, what we call financial repression. Who are the winners and who are the losers here? Well, the losers are the savers, the investors, definitely. And so their pension fund beneficiaries, sovereign wealth funds and and foreign central banks, although we don't care about them. But domestically, everybody who's invested uh, through a pension fund, anybody who owns uh, fixed income is a loser. It's a very slow transfer of wealth from savers to borrowers. The beneficiaries are, well, the federal government and to some degree, every taxpayer, but then generally wealthier people. It's, it's a populist approach, right? Because wealthier people are going to be net savers. They're going to be net investors. You know, their benefit from the government funding itself at a negative rate is going to be dwarfed by their loss through the negative real return they earn on their assets. But if you have a negative net worth or very low net worth, then you're probably better off from that. So it is a form of wealth transfer, actually, uh, distribution of, of wealth down the income spectrum, which is why it's a populist uh, strategy. Well, is, is that really true? I mean, I, I think in, you know, in the 19th century, we think of the, the rentiers, the landed aristocracy with their massive piles of gilts and the, the characters in Jane Austen with their government bonds. So they were really net creditors. And then the, the people maybe who are struggling to get by and who would you know, borrow to buy their hovels and, and their mortgage, their farms and so forth, those were the debtors. But it seems that story doesn't really work today, right? It seems like the wealthy people are the ones that are essentially sitting on highly leveraged portfolios and the poor people are the ones that are counting on the pensions. Is the old narrative kind of changed somewhat? A lot of people would argue inflation hasn't gone up yet. The real rates have been coming down, but we don't have three, four, five percent inflation, at least not the way the government measures it. Listen, I think it's bad for everybody. I mean, I think it represents sort of a wealth transfer, but it's also sort of a wealth destruction. There's probably no real winner in a 5% inflation world. There's people who may think they're winners and it may look like it's attractive to the government, but 5% inflation creates all kind of investment uncertainty. You get lower returns on invested capital, you get less investment, lower productivity. I, I don't think anybody really wants that, but we haven't had that yet. Inflation has remained low for 
my whole career. My whole career basically has been a bull market for bonds with periodic episodes against that. I mean, it's an incredible thing, but that's what's happened. And I do think it's turning, but it's slow. It's slow to turn, but I do think that's turning. Yeah, it seems kind of a puzzle why this hasn't happened. If we, if we look at the amount of indebtedness, right, it's gone through the roof and the Fed has you know, acquired a bunch of it. You walk through in the book how this is in some ways an accounting fiction, right, that the government owes itself, right, the bulk of the money that it owes. But why hasn't this debt become, been monetized in, in the way that we would expect that would lead to inflation? Is it just simply this insatiable demand from institutions for interest-bearing assets, right? What's really going on to keep inflation and, and the monetization of the debt from happening? One of the issues is I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what inflation really measures. It measures the cost of a basket of goods and services a constant utility, but there's a lot of things people don't understand. The way quality adjustments work. So I just was looking at this the other day. So if you look at the component of CPI that is telephones and other sort of communication equipment, that's had almost a 10% compound annual decrease over the last decade in CPI. An iPhone is about $1,000. In 2011, the first iPhone was $660. So iPhones have gone up in price. But today's iPhone is so much more powerful than the one 10 years ago. It's got such high quality that the figures are just for that, right? So iPhones have gone down in price in the CPI world because the iPhone today gives you so much more utility. Now, it's not clear what you do with that utility. You can't just buy half an iPhone. But the CPI is trying to measure constant utility. In other words, what would it cost for you to buy what you bought 10 years ago? Now, what this misses is that living standards rise every year. So if you keep your income rising at the CPI over 10 years, you'll be able to buy the standard of living that you had 10 years ago, but your neighbors will have moved ahead. In fact, if you want to preserve your living standard the way most people think of it, they want to keep up with their neighbors. You've actually got to keep up at something like per capita nominal GDP or median household income, a nominal number, which increases at inflation plus productivity. So that's one piece that is not wrong. The CPI number is not a secret. That's how they calculate it. It's just that inflate, keeping up with inflation keeps you up at the old living standard, not the one today. So in other words, it gets you to where you can afford to buy the 10-year-ago iPhone, not today. Another big problem, I think, is with housing. And this is particularly relevant today, but the government doesn't measure the cost of housing for most people. Two-thirds of Americans live in a house that they own, and a house is an asset. And the CPI is, is measuring goods and services. And shelter is a service that a house gives you. So the government says, look, you don't have to buy a house to get shelter. You could rent a place and you may buy a house for other reasons than to give you shelter. So we want to separate out the value of the asset from the value of the service, namely shelter that it gives you. And it's a big deal because people spend a lot of their disposable income on shelter. So the government has this thing called owner's equivalent rent. And it's a really dumb idea. I mean, it's the best they could do, but they call homeowners and they ask them, what would your house rent for if you could rent it out unfurnished today? They ask people. In the days when we had cocktail parties before COVID, none of us hung out saying, I think my owner's equivalent rent has gone up 5% this month. We talk about house prices. Nobody really thinks about what they could rent their house for. So it's not another people really have a handle on but also it's not a cash number. So this OER, owner's equivalent rent, 
Nobody gets paid owners equivalent rent. Homeowners can't spend it. Nobody. So let's just suppose OER does go up. Let's suppose it was going up 10% a year, like house prices. The government would say, the Fed would say, well, you know, it's OER. It's an estimate of what you could rent your house for. So that's not inflationary anyway. In fact, for a long time now, for probably 20 years, has lagged the Case Shiller Home Price Index. And I'm not surprised because you could pick any number for OER and you don't have to do a transaction based on it. Everything else in CPI is based on actual transactions and stuff that's for, for selling. So that's another big problem. So you've got these quality adjustments, which people don't really appreciate. You've got housing, which is definitely not picked up properly in the data. And so I think that for a start, nobody should assume keeping up with inflation is going to get them where they want to be. But it really doesn't reflect most people's experience. People say, oh, I think inflation's hard. I think because they won't recognize that those rare big purchases save a lot of money, but they're infrequent. You know, they'll look at the cost of consumer goods, which they buy all the time and they go up a little bit. And that's fair enough criticism. But the quality adjustments and the way housing is dealt with don't reflect reality for most people. And so I think with housing, inflation is running on the CPI 2% ahead of what the government says. It's closer to 4 not Even with their personal consumption expenditure index, PCE, which the Fed prefers, uh, it's 1% higher. So it's wrong. The inflation numbers are wrong. So that's the first thing. You can't really trust the inflation numbers to be representative of your view of your life. So those are two interesting arguments. The first one, you know, I've heard a lot of economists say that we overstate inflation and that we fail to adequately account for the quality improvements and adjustments. And so it's interesting to hear the, the flip, flip side of that. I think most economists are like, wait, we have so much more. We have 50 different flavors of Coke and we have, you know, all this amazingly expanded product portfolio. I would, I would say a couple of things that I'm not sure that they overstate or understate the quality adjustment. I think the existence of a quality adjustment is a surprise to most people because most people think that keeping up with inflation will make them feel as rich as they were 10 years ago if they just do that. And the simple truth is that's not inflation is not designed to do that. But quality adjustments are very often highly subjective. You know, it requires, for example, with the new iPhone, you've got to take the old iPhone and say, what does the old iPhone sell for now versus the new one? And that's what the quality is worth. But an old iPhone is worth less because people want the new one. Or how do you adjust for the quality when you put an airbag in a car? What's that worth? What sort of quality improvement is that airbag precisely? And so there's a lot of subjectivity that goes into that. So I, I don't know that you could say it's, they overstated or understated. I just think that most people don't conceive of it as being adjusted for quality. And so it doesn't really help them. It's not a good planning tool is what that makes sense. Housing, they're just wrong. Housing, they're missing it. The quality adjustments, they're measuring something different. I know that the value of my computer from 1986 is probably negative. I'd have to pay somebody to haul that thing off. <laughs> I paid $3,200 for that thing. Yeah. But the housing argument, aren't all asset prices going to go up when interest rates go down? I mean, wouldn't this just mechanically lead to a upward adjustment of inflation whenever interest rates went down? Well, housing prices have gone up substantially in the last year. That's nothing to do with interest rates or anything. That's just we're all spreading out. Or it's anticipated inflation. So it's we think there's going to be inflation. So we're pouring more money into, you know, inflation. Well, I, I don't know. I think people who are causing that extra demand for suburban homes, they just they want to live somewhere else and they're paying what they gotta pay because they can afford it. Do they expect inflation? No. I think it's just that that house is worth more to them than it was a year ago. 
So I'm not sure that they anticipate inflation, but it is inflation. And what the real problem with the OER is the fact is two thirds of Americans choose to obtain shelter through owning an asset. That's just the reality, right? And it doesn't fluctuate a whole lot. It's between 62 and 68% for years and years. That's just what people do. So why deny that? That's just how people obtain shelter. It happens just like you generally own a car to get transportation, right? That's an asset too, right? Very few people go and, you know, rent a car whenever they need a car, right? Most people want to own the asset. So the cost of the asset is the cost of shelter, whether that fits into the sort of the neat sort of theoretical world of, of labor economists or, or, you know, BLS, because the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they're the ones that produce it. They're just trying to force a different reality onto what actually happens. So I want to talk a little bit about how people make sense of the, of the numbers. They're trying to figure out how well they're doing and they're looking at benchmarks and particularly in the hedge fund space. When you were trying to figure out exactly how well investors did who invested in, in hedge funds, you had to make a lot of guesses. You had to really extrapolate from numbers for a number of reasons. I mean, number one, the industry numbers are highly unreliable and you know, there's the numbers don't say anything about the fee structure necessarily. So could you, can you walk through, first of all, what motivated you to write the book, The Hedge Fund Mirage? What, at what stage in your career were you and why did you write this book and what was the reaction to it? I mean, I remember the reaction and I remember the response of the industry. So I started investing in hedge funds with J.P. Morgan in the early 90s and it was fascinating, it was very obscure. And of course, you sit there and you have a discussion with the hedge fund manager. And one of the things you're thinking is, boy, how much money does this guy make? You know the fee structure. You could sort of guess it on the back of an envelope. If you know somebody's running a billion dollars and is charging two and 20, you could tease it out. And then I started a business that invested in hedge fund managers themselves. And that was the source, that was the base of the book. So there, we were recognizing that the real money was by, made by the managers, not the investors. Let's get a piece of that. Yeah, I tell my students, if you want to be be a GP, not an LP, right? Yes, absolutely. The smart money owns the GP, not the LP, right? So that was the business that we set up to go into that. So then after doing that for a while, and I, when I left uh, J.P. Morgan, I thought, why don't we just go back and figure that out? And it's actually, yes, you make some assumptions. You have no idea what any investor made on any hedge fund. But at aggregate, you could get a reasonable idea because total assets in the hedge fund industry is, you know, there's sort of reasonable agreement about that number. And industry returns each year. Yeah, you know, people be a little bit of a part, you know, but generally, if a number in 2005 was 8%, you won't have other people saying it was 16. It was 8 or it was 9 or it was 7. Eight. So you broadly know industry size, industry returns. So therefore, you can derive from that what the aggregate investor across all of that. Well, before you go any further, the, the numbers that you use are provided by the industry HFRI, yes, so right? I, I went to Barclay Hedge, which is a database that provides AUM numbers for assets. And then industry returns, I used a hedge fund research and I specifically used the hedge fund research investable index because it's not much good having an index that shows returns if those hedge funds are closed, right? And an investable index is also an asset weighted index. Which is important. And to be clear, no one can actually invest in this index. That's the thing. No, about the investable this. index you can, ah, okay. which is the one I used. But the normal, the sort of more widely used index is not investable per se. There may be some hedge funds that you can invest in, but to be in the investable index, you have to be open. You have to be open. Right? So that's a little bit more meaningful of the uh, experience of all of the investors. So you can take a, you can, you can take a stab at that. Right? 
So then what about with fees? So no, of course, you don't know what hedge funds charge, but you can you can assume two and 20 back then. Fees have been coming down, I think, a little, not a lot. Two and 20. And then you make some assumptions that actually are quite conservative. So 2% management fee, if it's a $1 trillion industry, you know, that's $20 billion in fees. But on the incentive fee, I, I basically treated the industry as one very big hedge fund. So if the hedge fund industry made 8% on a trillion dollars, the math is, well, that's an 8% net number. That means that they charged a 2% fee. So they must have made 10%, but they took two out. And then they charged a 20% incentive fee and 20% of 10 is another two, that's 12. So I'd assume, therefore, that there was another, you know, two points of management fee, another 2% of incentive fee. So then people say, how do you know that was right? If you had a portfolio of hedge funds, they wouldn't all make money. If you make 8%, they're going to be some winners and some losers. And the winners will charge you an incentive fee, but the losers won't pay you an incentive fee back. So on an 8% return portfolio, the investor's actual incentive fee will be more than the two points that I just described. But I didn't adjust for that. You get survivor bias, the fact that hedge funds report voluntarily, right? And that therefore only the good numbers are in there and the bad ones are. So in fact, the returns should be lower. The actual experience returns should be lower. I didn't make an adjustment for that either because there was no need because it was already such a horrendously bad story for the investors. So I, I made two very big conservative assumptions that were favorable to the hedge fund industry. And it still winds up that investors, you know, had a lousy deal. So that's how I worked through the numbers. And I read this paper originally by two academics, Bren Yu and Ilya Ducha, where they wrote about the asset-weighted return of the hedge fund industry, which is really the internal rate of return, pretty much. It's the internal rate of return. And the industry always uses the time-weighted return. They just take the returns each year and they compound it all up. And the funny thing is that small hedge funds are, are often believed to do better than big hedge funds. And there's research to show that's the case, but it's expensive to find small hedge funds. And so maybe when you price it all in, maybe, you know, you make a higher return, but you're taking more risk and it's, and it's harder to find them. But people generally accept that small hedge funds do better than big ones, but that's how they get to be big. They also know that any big hedge fund they look at was better when it was smaller, okay? But then they don't make the third logical inference, which is that, a small hedge fund industry of half a trillion dollars was better than a big hedge fund industry. So they know that small hedge funds do better than big ones. They know that a big hedge fund was better when it was small. They forget that a small hedge fund industry was better. So they think that the old returns can be replicated today, even though it's a different industry. And even though they don't expect that $5 billion hedge fund to do what it did when it was $500 million. And that's just a failure. That's just a, a failure of analysis. It's just lazy to just, you know, take the numbers from the past and project them forward. And it didn't work. It hasn't worked. Well, it it's funny worked. to me because you have, you know, fairly sophisticated optimizer models that are sitting on top of really crappy ingredients. Just simple yeah. things about. Yeah, there's a lot of sophisticated analysis that goes up. Arithmetic returns versus geometric Garbage. returns dollar-weighted returns versus time-weighted returns or accounting for survivor bias or backfill bias. If you start with a bunch of garbage, it doesn't matter how much, how complicated your model on top is going to be. It's still going to spit out garbage, right? Yeah. Well, the whole premise is that hedge funds are stocks and you could just treat them like stocks and, and they're not. I mean, there's no, there's almost no persistence. So 
one of the surest ways for a hedge fund to raise money is to generate positive returns. And I sat in so many meetings with managers where we'd go through all this analysis of security selection and portfolio construction, risk management and so forth. But at the end of the day, if recent returns were good, we had a much more positive opinion than if they were bad. And yet it turns out that, so you've got investors who are basically momentum driven, right? Get money, right? And hedge funds, individual hedge funds have a, a, a very strong tendency to mean revert. In other words, they have what's called negative serial correlation, right? So a good year is more likely to be followed by a bad year. So you've got these momentum-driven investors who are chasing things that are absolutely not the antithesis. They're the antithesis of momentum-driven. So it's never going to end well. And yet the problem is there's always going to be good hedge funds. There will always be hedge funds that generate consistent returns year after year. That will be the case all the time. The problem is identifying ahead of time which ones of those are going to be the ones. They're often not so, investable either. Yes, and they're, and they're probably close. So you get an interesting, so you can turn CAPM on its head with this, which is fun, right? So let's just say that with hedge fund managers, you know, the whole idea of diversification is that you've got no skill in security selection, right? So you diversify that away. But in hedge funds, because hedge funds on average have negative return or bad returns, you need skill at hedge fund selection to have any chance. You don't want the average hedge fund return. You need to do better than the average, right? You can invest in stocks and just get the S&P and that's perfectly fine. So now you turn cap in and it's right? So if the point of diversification is to take away the absence of, of security selection skill, and now you're investing in a sector where you think you have security skill selection, but the overall average is bad, you don't want diversification you sh because you'll dilute your skill at picking securities. You actually want a very small number of hedge funds because the more hedge funds you get, the more diversification you introduce, the more you'll get the average return, which you really don't want the average return. If you think you're good at picking hedge funds, just pick two or three high conviction hedge funds and don't dilute your hedge fund security selection skill. And if you suck at picking hedge funds, then maybe you should have a diversified portfolio. And I wrote a paper on this or a blog post on this years ago because it's kind of fun when you stop and think about well, what is CAPM telling you here? You know, why is diversification good? It's because you're getting an excess return over the risk-free rate. But what if you're not? What if you're only getting an excess return where you do have security selection skill, where it gets you to a pretty different place? It's kind of fun. And the people who've done really well in hedge funds haven't picked that many. They've got a, they've got a few. I mean, years ago, hedge funds were funded by private bank clients, right? High net worth investors. And they weren't looking for diversified portfolios. They'd say, I met this guy called Julian Robertson. I think he's brilliant and I've given him some money, right? That's how that would work. And those are the people who did well. Unless that person was Bernie Madoff. Unless it was Bernie Madoff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had our own Bernie Madoff opportunity to invest, right? That was amazing. Fairfield Greenwich Day came to us. And they described how there was the, the asset management and the broker dealer, the asset management in the hedge fund, and how they communicated well together. They coordinated their activities, right? You know, if you're in trading, you understand that, oh, I, I get it. You know, when a client's buying through the broker, you tell the hedge fund, so the hedge fund can front money, right? But, you know, these meetings are polite and you don't say, did I hear you right? Are you really <laughs> trying to find You know, that's illegal. You don't say that. You make sure you've understood it correctly, right? <laughs> and then... After they've gone, you say, we're never doing that because, you know, even if we could approve it here, we'd never get through JP Morgan's system. 
And the beautiful thing about Madoff was that they had lots of investors who understood what we understood, which actually turned out to not be how they were making money at all. But nonetheless, this was widely believed. And Harry Markopoulos, I talked to Harry Markopoulos about this after my Hedgehog book, and he absolutely right. So many investors believed the hedge fund was front running the brokerage clients, and that was okay. Okay, so in other words, this guy is a crook, but he's not stealing from me. He's stealing from these other clients, so therefore I'm okay. So those people deserve to lose money. Like Fairfield Greenwich totally deserved to lose money on that because they willingly would benefit from illegal activity at the expense of other people. The tragedy with Madoff was all the individuals, right, who didn't have that understanding, and they thought Bernie was a good person and a friend and known from country club, and that's the most devastating thing. But the institutions who invested with Madoff, totally fair outcome that they lost money. Right. It's, it, they, maybe they should lose even more and have penalties imposed because they were... Yeah, they should. They should. Yeah. So we met him, or we're not Bernie Madoff, we met Fairfield Greenwich, we listed the pitch, we made sure we understood it. We don't invest in people that are front running. That's it. That's why a JP Morgan wasn't invested there or a Morgan Stanley or a Goldman Sachs, because they all sort of reached that same conclusion. You know, we didn't all figure out what Harry Markopoulos so cleverly yeah. did, which was that actually he, you couldn't trade as many options as he's doing, but we at least saw through the story that they were telling. Well, I remember Cambridge and Associates was advising all their clients to stay away, to steer clear. Yeah, so to their credit, that's good because they, they wouldn't provide the information. Well, I have a friend who's an investment officer at a pension fund, and, and he asked for more granular asset data from his hedge fund portfolio. And he discovered that he was actually just, he a lot of it was just, he was hedging himself and he was paying two and 20 to basically take opposite sides of, of a wide range of positions. I think it's kind of rare that the LP asks the GP, I mean, usually they won't share this data, but when you, and you're a substantial pension fund, you can you get a little bit of bargaining power. And it was he was surprised to see how much overlap there was, how much internal hedging there was going on. Yeah. And of course, it depends. I mean, when I was running a trading business, this was an interest rate, but I could have traders who were, had opposite positions, but they could both make money because of timing, because they get in and out at different times. And so just because they've got offsetting positions doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, but obviously it's systemic. And those are sort of core positions. It's kind of a waste of time. But depending on timing, yeah, it can work. You know, I mean, with the interest rate futures, every trader working with me had an interest rate futures position. And so in many cases, they'd offset, but that was okay because they'd be getting in and out at different times and it was very cheap to trade uh, euro futures. Now, when you're describing the, the hedge fund mirage and where it comes from, you, you mentioned these agency problems at the pension fund level and elsewhere. But you also kind of referenced this behavioral idea and that people are momentum traders. And I think it, I teach a course on behavioral finance and we talk about that at the retail level. But it's surprising when you encounter that at sort of an institutional level because it's, you know, it's fairly easy to demonstrate with some simple empirical data that there isn't positive serial correlation in, in, these, uh, in these asset markets. So how do you explain that? It's, and maybe even maybe the high net worth individuals might succumb to this, but it seems like institutional investors should be resistant to it. Is, it, is that just an agency problem in disguise? If we look at, for instance, what happened prior to the financial crisis, Chuck Prince was, you got to keep dancing when, when the music's playing. Is that an agency problem or is that kind of a, a behavioral problem? Was he deluding himself or was he just sort of... No, it's a, it is a behavioral finance problem and people should look beyond that. But when, you know, hedge fund due diligence is a lot of meetings with the manager and 
people there on the operational side. It's actually fun because if you like to meet people, you meet a lot of really smart people. I mean, there's no boring meetings with a hedge fund manager, but to come up with a sort of really objective numbers-based conclusion from all of those discussions, it's, it's going to be hard, right? There's no balance sheet or income statement to look at. You can't go and do due diligence on suppliers or customers or anything like that. And so there's fundamentally an investment process. And as an investor, you're never going to truly understand it because these are really smart people. And part of what they're doing is going to be intuition. And anyway, they're not going to tell you everything about how it works. And so an investor is never going to get the full flavor of what that process is. And certainly not in such a way that they could sort of quantify it or turn it into some model. Otherwise, you know, they, they would go do that. So I think it's, I would just say a hedge fund investor should be acutely sensitive to that tendency to be a momentum investor because the strategy itself, yeah, they may say, oh, we're doing long short investing and here's how we pick longs and shorts and so on and so forth. But you still don't truly understand what's, but why did you size this position X instead of 2X? And why did you ignore that stock and pick that one? There's still going to be that sort of judgment, that secret source that maybe the hedge fund manager himself can't even really describe. And so the investor doesn't have a truly clear picture of that decision-making process, which is why they rely on investment performance as validation, that there really is a good process here. And so I just think it's, uh, it, it means that it's hard. It means that it's hard. And I think, honestly, the best opportunities in hedge funds are in the obscure strategies. I mean, I, and there's probably fewer of those around now, but when I started investing in hedge funds, oh boy, over 20 years ago, uh, over 25 years ago, you'd go see some trader in some little obscure office down on Wall Street, and he's talking about convertible bond arbitrage. And, you know, it sounded very risky and it probably was risky, but it was an untrafficked area of the business. And that's why the returns were there. And that's what happened like, because of the success hedge funds. You know, there's only so many arbitrage profits that you can take out of the market. And eventually you just wind up, it's all arbitraged away. And that's why they wound up with a lot more market risk because ultimately you sort of gravitate, you know, Tiger was a great example. That Tiger was a stock picker. And eventually they got so big that there's just not enough good stock ideas. So they just tried trading currencies where you can do sort of an almost an unlimited amount. And, and that didn't work out so well for them. So I just think it's hard. I just think it's really hard. You meet hedge funds all the time to come up with, for an institutional investor like a JP Morgan, I work, you know, for a JP Morgan to pick 30 or 40 really talented hedge funds that are going to perform year in and year out. It's really hard to, to do that. And that's why they wind up, all of them, with fairly sort of mediocre returns. Albeit, and you know, the other thing is the goalposts have shifted, right? I mean, that's always something I find amusing because before I wrote The Hedge Fund Mirage, I wrote a, a, an article for AR Magazine about how the internal rate of return of hedge funds was quite low. And AR Magazine got its name from absolute return because hedge funds a long time ago said, look, we're absolute return vehicles. I mean, we're not going to make you money every day, every week but through a cycle. And then they couldn't, right? They showed in 2008 that they all uh, blew up. So then they went from absolute returns to relative returns because they can't do absolute. So they're just trying to be better than other things. And then it turned out that in fact, they were worse than everything. So now they're just trying to do uncorrelated returns. So they've shifted their goalposts down and down to an easy... I should say the consultants are doing this, right? Because the consultants are waiting for the market and gradually to a, you know, to a lower and lower hurdle. But I, I think it's hard. And when there's a good strategy, everybody runs into competing. 
So did you lose a lot of friends when you published that book? Did the cocktail party invitations in Connecticut dry up after <laughs> do you put the book? It was very funny. No, I got the, the almost all the reaction I got was from people in the industry, hedge fund managers, hedge fund investors, overwhelmingly, overwhelming, 95% said, you're absolutely right. You're onto something. There's a lot of incompetence. The only real Controversy. I wanted controversy, right? I mean, I thought this is a controversial idea. Nobody had written a book like this. I'm saying the things that have occurred, it shouldn't be this big. That should be controversial. And it was quite hard to actually get people to recognize that. But I, I did, you know, this hedge fund group in London, this hedge fund consulting group in London did take issue and they wrote, they wrote a paper sort of rebutting what I had said. And, and that was, that was great because at least there was a foil against me. Okay, fine. Let me respond to that. So we exchanged sort of blog posts a little bit, but no people in the industry know that they absolutely do. They totally get it. They totally get it. The fees too high that they're just responding to what the market is. And you know, the problem with fees is the way hedge fund investing works is you do all your due diligence and you really don't get to negotiate fees at the beginning. You wait until the end. And then you've invested a whole lot of time and you just say, this is the hedge fund I want. It's very hard to say, well, I've got three hedge funds and I'll take the one with a lower fee because they're, they're not going to be, you know, substitutes for one another. And so that's why it tends to be hard, you know, unless you're a very big institutional investor could say, look, we're just paying one and 10 and don't bother showing up unless one and 10, but we'll give you $250 million. That might work. But then you know what? Some of the best hedge funds will probably say, hey, I don't need the money anyway. That's why fees stay relatively high. Certainly much higher than it should be, I think. I usually don't do this, but since we're ending the interview fairly soon, I thought I'd do this just for a change and say, hey, what should people invest in? I mean, it's right now with equities priced the way they are and other inflation sensitive, not insensitive assets, you know, at a very high level. And with the prognosis on, on fixed income looking pretty grim with our hedge fund friends, not the most attractive receptacles for our investment capital, where, where should we be looking right now? Well, you should be in stocks. People should have stocks and cash, no fixed income. I wouldn't bother hedge funds. It's too complicated. It's too illiquid. And then within stocks, I really think investors need to be sensitive to the possibility that inflation is going to go not to 10%, but 3% or 4%. We, we invest in the energy sector in my business. It's been a tough few years in energy, but energy is one of the places where if inflation does pick up, you know, commodity sensitive businesses like that will tend to give a little bit better protection. And so stocks, but with an overweight towards inflation sensitive sectors of which energy, energy would be one example. We may be real estate, although it's very hard to, to make confident forecasts on commercial real estate on office space is very hard right now because that's what we've gone through in the last year is that permanent or temporary change. But get ready for three or 4% inflation. You know, I don't think 10, that's an outlier, but. 3% inflation over the next 10 years, I think that's a pretty good bet and 4% is a possibility and 2% is very unlikely. And so be positioned for that and the interest rates to gradually move up with that. That's what my, me, I'm invested in energy and real estate. That's what I've got. So that's what I would suggest. Well, let's hope we don't go back to 18% interest rates. That's what I remember my, my dad bought a whole bunch of bonds then. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Simon. I really appreciate you joining. And remember, bonds are not forever. I think this is, you got to get a sequel out to this one because uh, everything that you've written is now on steroids. <laughs> and of course, this one, Hedge from Raj. Yeah, thank you. Great. Great to you know do the interview and to chat with you. And, and uh, yeah, interesting. I hope it was helpful for you. Okay. Talk to you soon. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.